good to have you for the next in our series. We're as far as Jeremiah. And um, before I get to Jeremiah, can I just uh, say to any house group, home group leaders, that this is available on the table. And uh, this is a, a few readings as to how the home group might deal with what Desi was talking about in Isaiah last time. So if you're a home group leader, then please pick those up. I see some rushing to get them already. That's there for you uh, if you want it. And then it is uh, always a joy to have Peter amongst us. I was just thinking that today was a good day because the last time we had baptism and sacraments in Fitzroy in the one day, I think I got lost at O'Hare Airport and made Peter do the two baptisms and the sacrament. Um, thank you, Peter. I'm, I'm always in your debt. Um, <laughs> So uh, I don't only, I'm not only excited by uh, the mind that Peter has and what's in that mind as the way he looks at things from that mind. And I'm looking at the notes tonight and thinking of empire and all of that that we need to um, think about and be alert to and stand against. And I'm very excited to have uh, Peter coming to speak to us tonight. Lecture in missiology at Bible, the Belfast Bible College to give your uh, title now and um, uh, it's great to have you coming to share with us in Jeremiah. Let's just pray together before Peter comes. Lord, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for um, all his, system, his biblical knowledge. We thank you for the missiology that he does on a daily basis, for the way he looks at the scriptures and applies them to the modern world that we live in. We pray for tonight as he comes to uh, lead us into Jeremiah to understand the message of this prophet, and particularly to understand the message of this prophet and what resonates with us uh, so many centuries and millennia later. We pray, Lord, that you would fill him by your spirit and that uh, all the research that he's done for this and all the planning and preparation, you would uh, fill that with your spirit and that it would come alive to us, not just in knowing about the book of Jeremiah or about the context of Jeremiah, but we ask that your spirit might speak into our hearts as individuals, as a fellowship, and as Christians trying to live under the empire of our day. Bless our time together. Bless Peter as he speaks to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter, you're welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be here this evening. Um, and uh, great to share it in this series. Uh, so, Jeremiah. Um, it's a, yeah, I'm not a biblical scholar, theologian, primarily. I am, uh, as you've heard, a lecturer in missiology. That's the way I approach things. Uh, so from that sort of discipline of mission, engaging the world, perhaps you could call it a sub-discipline of practical theology. So my mind always goes towards that. Um, so before we get into Jeremiah itself, um, just how do we read the Bible? Uh, just to give you a little picture into the way that, that I engage with Scripture. Um, and I don't know if this resonates with you or not, but this is the way we're going tonight, whether you like it or not. Uh, when I was a uh, minister in Limerick, we invited Brendan, Father Brendan from the Dominicans to come along to work with a small group of us because we we'd heard about this method of reading scripture called Lexio Divina, and we wanted to, to explore it. And he came along, 
and there's a group of us, uh, most of us, and you know, well, I, was, I was a young lad in my 30s, and we had people in the 40s, 50s, whatever. With one question, he reduced us to being like a group of teenagers. You know the teenagers in the Bible study group? Silent, looking at the floor. First question, he said, why do we read the Bible? And we went... A deceptively simple question. And we, we could, you know, it was so simple, but we couldn't come up with anything to say about it. And he said, we read the Bible to get to know God better, to get to know ourselves better, to get to know the world better. Wow. Isn't that it? Isn't that it? And that has stuck with me ever since. And so, uh, as I come to the Bible, a little method or uh, thing that I've come up with, we, we come to the Bible, which is, of course, where we expect to hear God. There's something about this book that we believe this is the place that we will hear God speak. But involved in this conversation, why is this so slow today? There's me. I am the person that is coming to read this text. And I'm coming with my experience and my background. I'm coming with what's going on in my life at the moment. I'm coming with all of that stuff that's in my head. I've got stuff that I want to find out about, that I want God to answer. I bring all of this with me, whether I like it or not. And we've got the world. Um, the world is out there. The world is as it is. I am part of this world. It affects me. I have a little effect on it. And so as I come uh, to the Bible, I'm coming to the Bible and I'm engaging with the Bible. I'm engaging with the world. The Bible world. There's a connection going on there. I'm trying to understand the world through the Bible. I read, get, read the Bible to get to know myself better, to get to know the world better, to get to know God better. And the thing that's missing in the picture, and I don't quite know how to put it, is that God's involved. God's involved in each of those aspects. And so he's part of this mix. And so I, I envisage this isn't totally unique to me. I've nicked this from a few other places, cobbled it together. Um, a critical conversation between each of these. So it's not as if there's a direct line from the Bible to the world that I can just draw now. That equals that. It's more like a conversation going on. And the same, same with me and the Bible. There's not just a direct that equals that. That would be quite simple. But it's more... The Bible, as I read it, asks questions of me and I ask questions of it and there's a conversation that happens and God's in the conversation. So, that's how I'm coming to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> so we begin. Let me see. We all right? Book of Revelation. <laughs> Ahem. <laughs> <laughs> 
Just testing, you're awake. <laughs> it's been a horrible mistake. <laughs> the world. The world of Jeremiah. You've got a little summary of the context of Jeremiah in your notes there. A busy period in the world of the time. And we can think of it in three sort of strands of the world. There are empires um, working in this era, empires that control what is going on in the world. The Assyrian Empire has been around from the 8th to the 7th centuries BC. It's been overarching world power. It has been the system by which the world has been operating for a long time. But at the time we're coming towards, it is in decline. And we are coming towards the time when the Babylonian Empire is taking over. So at the macro level, there is change, there is uncertainty, there is a way that the world has been that is coming to an end. There is something that is emerging. And that's never an immediate thing, is it? It happens over a period of time. How do you deal with that? How do you live through those times? We have got the kings within Judah. King Josiah. Uh, you've done the books of kings and all of this, so this will all be very familiar. I've got students, they look up blankly you normally when you say that sort of thing. What did we do last week? <laughs> king Josiah, the great reformer king who, who renewed the worship, who brought back the, the well, discovered perhaps the book of Deuteronomy or all of those old laws and traditions and the way of worshiping God brought those back to the people. Followed by Jehoiakim, Followed by Zedekiah, the last king who was taken into exile. Some major events that happened during this time. I'm going to put this up here, see if this works better. <clears throat> so, but around 632, um, Jeremiah begins his ministry, chapter 1, verse 3, you'll find that. Um, so that's around the time that Jeremiah begins his ministry, but things are happening in the world around us. A significant battle at Carchemish, where the Assyrians, the old empire, uh, twinned up with the Egyptians, who were another sort of minor empire, if you want to call it that, around the time. They teamed up to try and halt the advance of the Babylonians, and it didn't work. They were defeated. Uh, but, as I said, these things never happen all at once. A few years later, another battle. Babylonians are defeated. You can see backwards and forwards. Which one's going to win? Which way is the world going to be? How can you be sure? We get Jerusalem being attacked by the Babylonians in 598 or 597. And Jehoiakim and his people are taken into exile. We get... Later, Judah is under the Babylonian rule by this stage. They're a vassal state, but Zedekiah rebels. 
In 587, we get the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's completely sacked by the Babylonians, and you get the major exile. And after that happens, the Babylonians put a governor in charge of Judah. The, the local people don't like this. They kill the governor um, and flee into Israel or into Egypt. Um, um, so they, they move swap one empire for another, in a sense, trying to find security. Um, so they're backwards and forwards here. Um, sorry, it's a very small text. All the dates are as on the sheet. All right, they're all, they're all there. I couldn't fit it in any bigger. The main point of that is to show this is a period where things are happening, where shifts are happening at a macro level. The world is changing. There's different reigns, different people in charge of the politics of Jerusalem with different attitudes and approaches. Josiah, the reformer. Jehoiakim. Um, oh, this is where, uh, if I was an Old Testament scholar, this would all come from like that to me. But Jehoiakim is actually sort of put in place by the Egyptians. All right, so he's, he's loyal to them. Zedekiah is put in place by the Babylonians. So, which way are we going to go as a country? Do we have any choice in this? Unsettling times with battles. Battles, and I think we tend to read this, it's ancient history, it doesn't affect us. Look at the news. Watch. Look at Syria. That's what war looks like. So when Jerusalem is sacked and destroyed, look at those images. That's what it's like. So, a time of turmoil. What's the best way to live? What's the best way for us as a country? What's the best way for me as a person of faith? How do I live in this world? That's then. Um, and we can go to a, a first critical conversation. So what does that mean? What, what do we do with that context of Jeremiah? Well, I am coming to this text as a person who is living here and now. And we are coming living here and now. What do we see? A world order that is changing. Now, the colors in these two maps aren't quite the same, but the top map there, the sort of, oh gosh, I need Osa to tell me what colors those are, bluey shades. Um, the British Empire, in the top map, you can see, oh no, sorry, it's not blue, it's, uh, see India there, that color all over the map is the British Empire, as it was then. And look at now, there is no British Empire. Instead, we've got the European Union. Um, you can look at other ones. China doesn't appear in the old one. 
China is there now. India was part of the British Empire. India is now a rising power. The world is changing around us. The world order is changing around us. Um, it's not just that. That's at the really big level, but the world order is changing in other ways. We've had a financial crash. We all know that. My children are the first generation for a long time who cannot reasonably expect that their standard of living is going to be better than their parents. So there's something happening in the world order. We've got a rise of different political responses. We've got populism. We've got different types of politics seeming to be rising, different answers to what is going on. Largely perhaps fueled, and you have a conversation about this one, but by feelings of alienation. This world order is changing. This world order has not worked for us. It is not working for us the way we feel it is going. We feel insecure. We need a response. And we feel that the world order, as it is at the moment, has to change because it's destroying our planet. But we don't know how. What are the right responses? What are the right responses as a nation? What are the right responses as a person of faith? Big issues, big questions. And it's not just personal to a person of faith. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland, would the last person in turn out the lights when they leave? All of this change in society, in the world around us, well, some people you could call it post-Christendom, you can call it whatever, but it is having an effect on us as communities of faith. How do we respond? How should we respond? Hmm. Now, we cannot, I believe, as I said before, draw straight lines from Jeremiah to here. Jeremiah did this, so we should do that. I don't believe it's going to be that simple. But I think this idea of a conversation can help us. I think we can say to, to Jeremiah, the book, as we come to it, we are living in uncertain times and we are struggling to find out how to cope. You lived in uncertain times. And we can begin to have a conversation. that make sense? Yeah. Well, Jeremiah is written in the shadow of empire. The big powers that had set the system and the way that the world worked, one was going off the scene, one was coming on the scene, and there were other actors in there. Does that resonate with us? I think the obvious 
you know, in a sense, straight line to draw would be to look at the superpowers of our day. And that's, that could well be valid. That could be part of our conversation. But I want to add in a quote, and it starts in the bottom right-hand corner of your page here. This is from the Council for World Mission, drawn up by people who, um, well, by, by some people in the third world, the two-thirds world, and in uh, some Western people, but taken up by the Council for World Mission, um, a multinational organization. And in a sense, you could say that this is how some of the people in other parts of the world analyze the situation. And what they say is, we speak of empire because we discern a coming together of economic, cultural, political, and military power in our world today that constitutes a reality and a spirit of lordless domination, created by humankind, yet enslaving simultaneously. An all-encompassing global reality serving, protecting, and defending the interests of powerful corporations, nations, elites, and privileged people while imperiously excluding, even sacrificing humanity and exploiting creation. A pervasive spirit of destructive self-interest, even greed. The worship of money, goods, and possessions. The gospel of consumerism proclaimed through powerful propaganda and religiously justified, believed, and followed. The colonization of consciousness, values, and notions of human life by the imperial logic. A spirit lacking in compassionate justice and showing contemptuous disregard for the gifts of creation and the household of life. Well, we could talk about this later, but I would propose that there is a, they're saying there is a, it's not a nation state, but there is an empire of sorts that is the way the world works. And I think I would add to that, because that was 2011, that that is creaking. There are things happening to that, and we don't know where it's going. So we've located Jeremiah. I've attempted to locate us ourselves. At the end, we, you can come back to me on that one, all right, if you don't like it or if you want to question it. Um, but having done that, let's go to Jeremiah and begin to explore a few key passages in this book. I want to begin with chapters 6 and 7, largely chapter 7. If you do have Bibles with you, it might be useful to have this. Chapter 7 is sometimes described as Jeremiah's temple sermon. Because chapter 7 begins, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. So Jeremiah is going to the temple at the heart of Jerusalem. The temple that is at the heart of their worship and their way of their, their, their life as a people of faith. And he is to give a message, a message to them. 
What is this message? We haven't time to go through it all in detail. But part of the message in verses 6 and 7 is about social justice and idolatry. If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Social justice and idolatry. Interesting to note, the idolatry... I, I, when I was in Nepal, I think one thing I learned about idolatry, I used to th- imagine worshipping other gods would only be because you saw something attractive, something good, something praiseworthy in another god that you wanted to worship. Uh, in Nepal, I discovered that people worship gods often out of fear. In Nepal, the gods were there to be appeased, they were, they were beings that had effect on your life, but did not really have any concern for you. So it was about appeasing them, keeping them on your side. And reading for this, I was interested to discover that part of the reason, perhaps, that there were idols in the temple was that part of being a vassal state to Assyria meant the Assyrians said, you will put our God alongside your God's. You will accept our philosophy, theology, whatever, alongside your own. It's okay for you to worship your own God, but you will worship our God as well. So idolatry, not just something that you do because it's a nice warm feeling. Sometimes it's expedient. It's reality. It's living in the real world, the way the world works. But if you have social injustice and idolatry, the Lord says if you have that, you will not stay in this land. Verse 8, he goes on to say to the people, but look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Deceptive words that are worthless are being spoken. Jeremiah is not the only prophet in Jerusalem at this time. Jeremiah is not the only one who says he is bringing God's word to the people. Other people are doing this as well. So if you go back to verse, chapter 6, verse 14... Jeremiah says of them, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Turn to chapters 27 and 28 in Jeremiah. Jeremiah acts out a parable of what's going to happen to the people. God says to him, make a yoke. And put this yoke on yourself as a sign that you, as a people, are going to be taken into exile. You will be yoked to Babylon. Another prophet, Hananiah, comes along and does a prophetic action. And he breaks the yoke off Jeremiah's shoulders and says, 
in such a way the Lord will break the yoke and you will be free. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem at this time of uncertainty, of being unsettled and unsure, and you get people on the one hand saying God says this, and on the other hand God says that. We are used to reading the book of Jeremiah hundreds of years later, knowing the answer. Who would you believe? Jeremiah says, you get these prophets here saying, God will surely protect us. And they had good theology on their side. Because they could say, we are God's people. He has chosen us. God has promised to give us this land. How, how could it be that he will renege on that? Oh, things may not go too, too well for a while. He may discipline us. But surely not. This temple cannot be destroyed. You can see how the logic would go. Jeremiah says, go to Shiloh, where there was a temple to worship God, but there is no more. And Jeremiah is not an easy read. Not an easy read because I must confess the God that we meet in Jeremiah is what I think Pete Rollins described as the white hot God. The God who says to Jeremiah, do not even pray for these people. Hard to come to terms with in some ways. So in Jeremiah 7, we get Jeremiah coming along with this message. We get a counter message. We know who wins in the end, but at the time, it would have been hard. I think I can identify with that in our own context. We'll come on to that later. Let's skip on to Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, now, you will be familiar with some words of Jeremiah. Anybody know a verse from Jeremiah 29 off the top of their head? Yeah? Sorry, I've got to get Um, nice, comforting words, eh? Oh, let me get it here. Right. Jeremiah chapter 29. What we hear in Jeremiah 29. There's a verse in verse 7. That th these are people who've been taken from Jerusalem by the first invasion of the Babylonians. Taken from Jerusalem, defeated. Remember what war looks like, folks, eh? This was not a nice little trip. This was rough. Ripped from their own land by a powerful enemy. Forced to travel a long way from home. And said, this is where you are now. 
Verse 7. Wrong chapter. Uh, here we go. Verse 7. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. That to me was a motto when I was a minister of churches. Seek the welfare of the city. Be a blessing for the people around you. To me, um, it goes on to talk about planting trees and all that kind of To me, get engaged in the life of your local community. Be a blessing to them. Do social action work. Preach the gospel. That was, to me, um, a very powerful verse. And then verse 11 um, a nice comforting verse when we're going through times of hardship. I know, declares the Lord, the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And we hear comfort. I'm going through a difficult time, but it won't last. What did they hear? at the time. Collaborate with your enemy. This is the city that has, has overcome you. This is the empire that is destroying your nation. Seek the welfare of this city that is the heart of the empire. There's a really interesting dynamic in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, when he's speaking to his people, he is saying, you must not resist the Babylonians because they are, God is using them. He's treated as a collaborator and a traitor by his people. He's arrested and all of that. But is he pro-Babylonian? In a sense, he isn't. In a sense, he is against. But he, here he is saying... You must, when you go into this place, work for this empire. And that would have been hard to hear, wouldn't it? More inclined to have little bits of acts of sabotage and all that sort of stuff. So seek the welfare of the city is a challenge of how you live in empire challenge of how you approach your enemy, the one who's defeated you. What about the, I know the plans I have for you. You hear that, but you also hear in verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. So this nice stuff is going to happen in 70 years time. So what does that mean to you? Are you going to see it? Mm. Wow, what does that mean to them? At least partly, I think, when we come to this. Um, well, one, it's, it's a you plural, isn't it? It's, it's to a community, not to a person. I know the plans I have for you. To me, it also brings, and this is a little bit of interpretation coming in perhaps, but it brings in the, the slip earlier about revelation. It's in times, these times of 
extreme crisis in empire that the, the apocalyptic literature comes in. And what apocalyptic literature is partly saying is that what you're seeing now is not the whole picture. And also what happens in life now is not the whole thing that there is for you. you know, so, so our hope is not just for this world. Because otherwise it doesn't add up. There, to me there has to be something more beyond So Jeremiah chapter 29 is, is a hard-nosed, hard-nosed message to people who are living in an uncomfortable situation in empire about how to do that. And I think we could have a critical conversation about what that might mean for us in our empire. When do we seek the welfare of this empire that we are part of. When are we called to resist? Because both are in scripture. Yeah. Another key passage, Jeremiah chapter 32. A hopeful prophetic action. What is the context of this? Jerusalem is under siege now by the Babylonians. They've attacked Jerusalem before, carried some people off into exile, withdrew, left it alone for a while. Now they are back. So Jeremiah and the people are in a city surrounded by an army that they can see beyond the walls. Later on, it describes how the siege ramps are being built for this army to come into the city. Again, imagine what that feels like. And Jeremiah's relative comes from um, the village that is outside Jerusalem, probably in land that the Babylonians are all over. And he comes to Jeremiah and says, I've got a field, and you as my relative have a chance to redeem, to buy this field from me. Jeremiah at this stage is sort of imprisoned in the courtyard of the royal palace because he's preaching treasonous, seditious words about the Babylonian Empire. So that is the context. An opportunity to buy a relative's field, to buy some land. Would you? Does that seem like a good a good opportunity, a wise investment. But Jeremiah does, God tells Jeremiah, you will buy this land. Why? Because, verse 43, once more, fields will be bought. Once more, deeds of land will be exchanged Jeremiah buys the land, gets the deeds, gets them in an earthenware jar and, and buries it, keeps it safe. What is this all about? He does it in front of witnesses. Why? 
verses 26 and 27, because God is in this terrible event that is happening. God is in all of this. And 43, 44, once bought, once again, fields will be bought and sold. To me, this is a hopeful prophetic action. Because faith in the context of empire is, well, for Jeremiah, was realistic about the awful power of empire. But also that God was in this, and therefore there is still hope. The empire never has the final say, even if it says it does. Because even though empires claim to rise because of their own strength and their own wisdom, their own power, and their propaganda always proclaims that, even that, even if it looks like it is true, it is not true. Faith refuses to give in to the propaganda of empire. Faith at times chooses to make choices that do not make sense within the confines of what seems to make sense. And a critical conversation we could have if the empire that we are in is an economic empire. Are the hopeful actions of people of faith not likely to be economic acts? I hate to say that, that might touch our wallets, our saving plans, our investments. And here I'm saying again, there is no direct line. Jeremiah did, therefore I should. Okay, please hear me. I'm not saying to go and buy a field. But a critical conversation might want to say, if we live in an empire that is economic and is trying to make us think that that is reality, maybe we need to think that our economic acts may be prophetic. When we go on to chapter 34, verses 8 to 22, a little passage where the people, the wealthy of the land, decide to set free the slaves, their brothers and sisters who are slaves. Wow, what a wonderful thing. They seem to have remembered the old laws that Moses gave, that every seven years slaves are to be set free. The old the old covenantal economics in which, in which, yes, some people would get ahead, but there would be ways of ensuring that inequality did not become too much. An economic system in which each family had its land, its access to all it needed to live. Great thing that they... Uh, they released the slaves, but very shortly, you read in that chapter, they took them back again. They re-enslaved them. Whew. And here we get the tension 
between the economics of empire, where economic power is what decides social relationships. Uh, economics of empire, which is predicated on the myth of scarcity. There is not enough in this world. Therefore, we have to ensure that we have enough. Therefore, we have to get, we have to hoard, and we have to protect. The economics of empire in tension with the covenantal economics. It talks about neighbor solidarity. And this, this is Walter Brueggemann's phrase, is in contrast to the myth of scarcity, celebrates the lyric of abundance that God, the creator, has created the world with abundance. There is enough. And if you approach things from that perspective, things look very different. Jeremiah 50 and 51. Towards the end of the book, we get an extended section where empire, Babylon, has become the way the world is, affecting everyone and everything, unchallenged, unrivaled, simply the way things are. Babylon that Jeremiah has got into trouble with for not opposing and for uh, being considered by his own people to be a collaborator almost. Is Jeremiah capitulated to empire? Absolutely not. 51 and 52 are an extended poem as to what will happen to Babylon. Empire is not ultimate. This section dismantles all of the pretensions of the empire to be all-powerful, to be eternal, to be in control. It critiques its mythology of its gods who were presumed to be greater than Yahweh because they had defeated inverted commas, Yahweh, as proved by the exile, this poem says no. Empire is not ultimate. Its gods are not greater than Yahweh. And God will restore his people. So, empire world system, the way the world is in Jeremiah, there seems to be a recognition perhaps, or if you look at scripture in a whole, that, that we need systems. They're going to be there. That the, the attitude towards them by people of faith is going to be nuanced, complex, sometimes resisting but always recognizing that God is in control and always refusing to worship. 
always refusing to worship the gods of the empire. Even when it seems prudent, realpolitik to do so. So I've, I've touched down on a few key texts in Jeremiah. Time for another critical conversation. Time for me to ask questions of the text about God, myself, and the world. What came to my mind, can we be certain? Can we be certain about the right way to live and act? About the right thing to do? Can we be certain about the right... Can I be certain as a Christian of the right way to vote about Brexit? Jeremiah is a bit worrying, if I ask me, because two views being presented. Jeremiah saying one thing, other people saying another thing. You've got to make a choice. What if I make the wrong choice? And Jeremiah is a profoundly scary book because the choice matters. God does judge. How do you know who to follow? Jeremiah seems supremely confident at times. Thus says the Lord. Boom. Stands in the temple, assured, giving a clear message. I would like to be like that. At times, do you know, there are times when I'm pretty confident because I can see something that's wrong. No. That cannot be right. But within Jeremiah, as again, he's, called, he's not called the weeping prophet for nothing. Supremely confident and yet great anguish and uncertainty. Chapter 7, verse 16, God says, him, Do not pray for these people or offer a plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. The implication that Jeremiah is doing just that. Lord, no. Jeremiah chapter 20, he says, Lord, you deceived me. And I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. So I think even with Jeremiah, we've got to balance that confidence with the anguish, the questioning, and even God, you deceived me, Lord. Brueggemann describes him when he's like this, Jeremiah, as a radical, grown cynical with fatigue. A radical, grown cynical with fatigue. And as I engage with the world, sometimes I can identify with that one. And what if, what if I am wrong? 
What of those who are on the other side? I wonder. Well, I was chatting about this with someone who should actually be up here instead of me. Uh, Charlie Hadith in our college, he's the Old Testament lecturer. So two, three minutes of speaking to Charlie, I was convinced I shouldn't be doing this at all. But anyway, but we were chatting about this bit and he, he uh, pointed out to me, and I haven't done this research myself, but he says there are good grounds uh, some scholars consider that the book of Lamentations, which, if you know, comes after Jeremiah, an extended poem of lament about what has happened in the destruction of Jerusalem. Charlie says that, that among scholars, there's uh, a good, uh, it's not proven or anything, but I, I think it's worth thinking about. There are good grounds to say that Jeremiah is written by those who were on the other side and who did get it wrong. And therefore, when it came to that disaster of exile, of being carried away, and again, think what that felt like, the trauma, the despair. Has God finally rejected us? There are some grounds to consider that Lamentations is written by those who are thinking all of this through. Lamenting the ruin of their lives, their country, their temple, everything. But turning to what Jeremiah had left them. And finding in that and with their God the faith, the resources, the grace. So it does matter what we do believe and yet God's grace, God's grace still able to take us when we've messed it up big time. And finally, as we sort of have a critical conversation with this whole thing, living in empire as people of faith, how do we, where do we locate ourselves in terms of empire? There's a recognition that most of the Bible is actually written when God's people are living in the shadow of empire. In Egypt, under Assyria, Babylon, New Testament in Rome. Empire is always there. And when we read the stories of people of faith in empire, we tend to, well, when it's in Egypt, we are the oppressed people of God, whom God frees from this tyranny of empire is the way we like to read that story. But again, my colleague, Charlie, wrote a very disturbing article drawn in another book saying that when we read Exodus and we think of the empire that we live in in this world now, 
we probably have more in common with the Egyptians than the Israelite slaves. We live in a global economic empire and we are its beneficiaries by and large. And others are oppressed and others are enslaved. If God's going to set the oppressed free, what does that mean for us? Jeremiah shows us that our relationship with empire is, multi is complex and multifaceted. There are times to recognize that God is working in it, through it. There are times to oppose it and critique it and condemn it. Locating ourselves in empire is probably, I would argue, one of the key challenges of faith in this present day and age.